0: Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs Related to all aspects of our divine faith. And you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: Welcome to everyone rolling in here this evening. A blessed uh, beginning of our Palm Sunday Feast, which is so beautiful. It shines a light right through the darkness of the cross. You carry those palms right through the cross to the resurrection of Christ. Monsignor Pope, on behalf of everyone that's here present uh, tonight, I'm just so blessed to have you uh, with us and to be so kind and gener- generous with your time over the past weeks and also in the, mm-hmm. in, the in the week coming. Uh, for those who are brand new to the Institute may not know you, so Andy's going to just mm-hmm. share a little introduction about you, and then we'll be able to begin our program. Great. Our speaker this evening attained his Master's of Divinity and Master's of Arts degree in Moral Theology from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in 1989. Ordained to the priesthood in that same year, Monsignor Pope has served at several parishes in the Archdiocese of Washington and was named Monsignor in 2005 by Pope Benedict XVI. He has served as pastor at Holy Comforter St. Cyprian in Washington, D.C. since 2007. He also blogs regularly for the Archdiocese of Washington, Monsignor. It really is a pleasure to have you with us again. Uh, the shows are yours. Welcome.
2: Oh, good. Yeah, thanks. Um, and also for your generosity to me, to for the time and other things that you do. And just encourage all of you, you know, as you know, you don't need me to tell you, but uh, the Institute doesn't really have any lesser expenses. In fact, they probably have more uh, because of, you know, all the things to organize and get extra things out. So just encourage you to be generous, all right? Generous if you can, and remember your parishes and all those expenses and things go on, even though uh, we can't get there, all right? So I still have to have the trash picked up, et cetera, you know, all that stuff. Right? <laughs> Thank you, Monsignor. Okay. Well, listen, bless you. Uh, let's, uh, we've had a beautiful hymn, but I'll just say a very, very brief prayer. And we're, we're mindful, Lord Jesus, that this um, high priestly prayer was given, to you, uh, by, was given by you, Uh, right at the hour that you went out to begin your passion. And so it's called the Priestly Prayer because it's linked to your passion, the great priestly act by which you offered yourself uh, to the Father for our salvation. And so we're grateful, Lord, and help us to listen carefully to the words of your heart and your concerns for us and your love for us in this prayer. And we make this prayer, Jesus, in your holy name, you who are Lord forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, you you have a handout and I, I kind of agree with Andy. Sometimes it's better instead of flipping back and forth and stuff to just listen. But if it helps you to have notes, you can you can have them there. Maybe mainly they're more there for your review, maybe later. Okay. With that in mind, um I want to first before we get into my reflections about the, the priestly prayer, the catechism actually devotes a good number of paragraphs to this priestly prayer of Christ. And I want to read, and I can won't read them all but I would like to read a number of highlights from the, from the uh, catechism. Paragraph uh, 2746 says this, when his hour, and again, that, that hour is in quotes, Jesus uh, pray, came and prayed to the Father. Now, th- this prayer that he prayed, notice, is when his hour had come. So That means it is now the hour for the Son of Man to be lifted up. It is now the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified, and we'll see that that's a very paradoxical glory, but it is the hour. So this is called the priestly prayer of Christ because it's linked to his hour. And the hour always means that time where it is now time for him to lay down his life uh, for the salvation of souls and to take it up again. Jesus says very very clearly in John's gospel, nobody takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. Um, and so again, uh, this is a free, loving, an obedient act of Jesus on our behalf. And uh, so he's not, he didn't just fall into the hands of robbers like some victim. Uh, again, no one could lay a hand on him until this hour came, and only then does he freely lay down his life and deliver himself into the hands of men. And so this prayer opens up the great exodus, the Passover of Jesus from, through, uh, through death and life for us, his great exodus on our behalf. And that's why it's called the priestly prayer. So paragraph 2746 helps us to understand why it's called that, okay? Because it doesn't sound like a typical Eucharistic prayer. You know, as you might hear a priest pray today. Um, it, it has elements, but it, it, it's, it's not. It's called the priestly prayer for all the reasons I've stated. Now, um, 2747 says, again, the same thing. This priestly prayer is inseparable, inseparable from his sacrifice, uh, it says here uh, that um, um, in, um, in, in paragraph 2748 that in this prayer, everything is recapitulated uh, or kind of reformulated and resummarized for us in Christ, namely uh, that God and the world, the world and the flesh, eternal life and time, the love that hands itself over for, and the sin that betrays it, the disciples and all those who will believe by their word, the humiliation and the glory and this prayer of unity. So there's so many things that are summarized here that are very precious to the Lord, as we'll see. Now, I want to go to uh, the, uh, the next pair, not the very next one, but 2750. And it says something very interesting here, that in his high priestly prayer, uh, it, it, it Christ fulfills from within the great petitions of the Lord's Prayer. First of all, his concern for the Father's name. Okay, Father, glorify Your name, and so on. They'll say um, His passionate zeal for the kingdom, the God, the kingdom, God's good, the, the glory of God's kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Uh, the accomplishment of the will of the Father. Thy will be done. You see, um, and His plan of salvation and our deliverance from evil. Now, one thing that's very interesting in the Catechism is that they don't mention uh, one line, namely, "Give us this day our daily bread." And I'm fascinated by that because. To some degree, the bread is implied here in in the fact that this this was, according to the Synoptic Gospels, a Passover meal. However, and I don't want to get too sidetracked, but many of you may know that John's chronology is a little bit different than the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels make it very clear that um, that the, the Last Supper was a Passover meal. John however is ambiguous about that and he seems to date the passover uh, I'm sorry this the, the last supper one day before passover so that it isn't technically a passover meal and I'm going to suspect that's why the catechism sort of remains silent on the aspect of the bread now I hope you're not too concerned about the fact that John has a slightly different dating than the synoptics don't be too concerned and here's why at the time of the Jewish people, first of all, they didn't have clocks and calendars and all that kind of stuff like we do. And people sometimes legitimately debated about, was this really the new moon or is it tomorrow? You know, there'd be these kinds of things. But also, there were four different calendars in use among the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. There were two solar calendars and two lunar, two lunar calendars, and different groups of Jews followed these different calendars. Um, It would seem that um, the the, the temple leadership followed a different set of calendars uh, from that of the, uh, uh, you know, say, the the apostles from Galilee. Um, Now, that would explain a a lot of things, so that for those uh, from Galilee who had, they were following a a certain lunar calendar that dated Passover on one uh, one day earlier, than um, uh, then I'm sorry one yet yeah, one day earlier than Jesus uh, in John's gospel um, but um, the um, it makes a little bit of sense when you think about it how likely would it be if it was really a Passover meal that uh, according to the temple leadership that they would be in their offices that evening to have a trial of Jesus and bring him over to Pilate and and all those things right so um it would appear that the temple leaders followed a slightly different calendar than Jesus and the disciples. And John is simply recording that fact. And John has Jesus being killed at the very hour that the Passover lambs are being killed. So that for the temple leaders, they followed the a calendar that would have had Passover that Friday night uh, and into Saturday, whereas Jesus and his disciples followed a calendar that had it the day before. Now, don't be too alarmed, because even today we have this problem. Uh, many of our Orthodox, I have a, a, a priest from the uh, uh, from the Eastern Rites, and their calendar, they follow the old Julian calendar, and frequently their Christmas is about three weeks different than ours. They don't celebrate Christmas on December 25th. They celebrate in what we call mid-January. And likewise, their Easter is sometimes as much as a month difference than our, our celebration of Easter. So don't be too concerned about the fact that that John um, has a, doesn't seem to couch this Last Supper as a Passover meal. He's just telling it from the perspective of the temple leaders and why they would have been in their offices and still up and running for business uh, to put Jesus on trial just before the Passover sets in. So I don't know, if I didn't want to get too sidetracked, but the fact that the Catechism says here that his priestly prayer fulfills all these things, namely Uh, the great petitions of the Lord's Prayer, the concerns for the Father's name, passionate zeal for his kingdom, the accompaniment of the will of the Father and of his plan of salvation and his deliverance from evil. But it, it omits the bread, which is, you know, this is my flesh, which is given for you. So it's just an interesting, I think, way that the catechism is remaining silent on an area of some controversy among theologians. But again, you shouldn't worry about it because this is actually a sign that uh, these are very honest documents from a period where sometimes people didn't always agree on the exact date of Passover. Remember, they celebrated it for a whole week, and different groups celebrated and emphasized different days. All right, so I hope that'll settle that for you. Now, finally, uh, then, um, the uh, I want to now begin to move into my own notes on this. Um, I've divided it into a number of things. I love my little alliterations. So... I wanna begin by looking at the paradoxical glory and we'll look at things like the proleptic graciousness, the prayers to guard us, preparing to go. So it's all P and G all the way, okay? So we're gonna look at the prayer that way. We'll do a combination, of a little bit of Bible study, a little bit of uh, Lectio Divina here, okay? Okay, are you ready to buckle in? We're gonna go through this priestly prayer now after some introductory notes and um, let's begin. And I want you to notice the setting. Uh, Jesus had finished giving lengthy instructions to the apostles at the Last Supper, and uh, he then breaks into a sort of a spontaneous prayer uh, that is somehow memorized or remembered, remembered by them, and they wrote it down uh, with this high priestly prayer. So he begins to speak now to the Father. You can almost imagine him there uh, at the table. Uh, no, remember, they reclined at table. They weren't sitting up on chairs and at a, a, a high table. At those times, they reclined on the floor on their left elbow with their feet behind them and their right hand to eat the food. And so in this context, perhaps the Lord leans forward and lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays. All right. So I guess it begins here. I want to begin with this little first section that I'm entitling paradoxical glory. When Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that, you may, uh, that, that uh, your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all humanity, so that he may give eternal life to all those who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Okay, now let's look at a couple elements of this part of the prayer. Notice I'm titling this paradoxical glory. A paradox is something that goes against the ordinary human or worldly way of thinking of something. So we would not see a person lifted up and nailed to a cross bloody with his flesh hanging like purple ribbons crowned with thorns and bleeding and, and struggling to breathe. We don't call that glory. That's just not, we don't, we don't talk like that. Um, not, Not in a worldly way, see? And yet Jesus spoke of this as his glorification. He says, and I, when I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all people unto myself. Again, notice that when I, when I am lifted up, another, another way of translating that is when I am exalted. And I, when I be exalted, lifted up on the cross, I will draw everyone to myself. Christ rules and reigns from the throne of the cross. He is crowned not with a golden crown, but with a thorn thorn-crowned brow. His scepter nails through his wrist. Um, and again, um, he uh, his, his his throne is is indeed the cross. Uh, very paradoxical. The strangest king you ever met. Uh, So there's a great paradoxical glory here, and yet this is his glory. Why is this his glory? And again, um, I think we need to go back to what is the cross an antidote for? What is the cross uh, destroying? See? And the answer is pride. Now, we were prideful. We didn't want to be told what to do in the garden. Before us, Satan was prideful. Um... He said, I will, I, will be, I will be the God, you know, and, and uh, know, you, you worship me. So the pride of Satan is what we're dealing with here. Um, now, how do you break pride? And again, a worldly way of thinking is you break pride. There's a 900-pound gorilla who needs to be put in his place. So I'm going to become a 1,000-pound gorilla and put him in his place. The only problem with that is that you've just become an, a replica of your enemy, just a worse version of your enemy. He wins. He wins, even if you conquer him, he wins because he's replaced himself with an even uglier thing. No, that's not how you break pride. Again, we've, you've heard this litany from me before, but it's worth repeating that darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Okay? Likewise, um, we, we see that uh, uh, hatred can't drive out hatred. Only love can do that. And finally, I would add, pride cannot drive out pride. Only humility can do that. So the glory of Christ is to humbly obey his Father and say yes. And in this, he breaks the back of Satan and his pride. And when Satan is running victory laps around the cross with the dead body of Christ, Christ goes down in his trophy room and he turns the place out. But again, this is his glorification because the glory of man is to obey the father. This is our truest freedom to obey the father. And this is our truest glory. So, again, he's modeling for us that the glory that we seek isn't some self-serving thing. The glory, what makes us glorious and wonderful is to know the Father. He'll talk about that later. (coughs) You're great if you know God. God doesn't care about your money except that you're generous with it. God doesn't care about the size of your house, how fancy your car is. God doesn't care about any of that except that you maybe use the car to drive the poor to the doctor. You see, he's not impressed with the stuff we're impressed with, all right? What what what's truly our glory is whether we know the Father and we allow Him to, uh, to bring us to the humility that will help us to know Him even more. So that's one thing I want to point out particularly about this. He says here, um, um, says here, glorify your Son. I'm in line two here. Glorify your Son at the end of verse one so that your son may glorify you. Now one might argue, well, how can you glorify the father? He's already perfectly glorified. Well, we make a distinction between God's intrinsic glory and his external glory. Uh, we can never increase God's intrinsic glory. He has that, period. But we, we can, if St. Thomas says, extend God's external glory by making it known. So Mary says, my soul proclaims or magnifies uh, the glory of the lord because not everyone here sees or understands or appreciates the glory of god and so we can extend his external glory and increase it in this earth by making it more manifest okay so that's what jesus obviously did in a very perfect way and which we do although imperfectly we still are called to do now one other phrase here i want to capture is in the third verse now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, Heavenly Father, the only true God. Now, you've heard me, if you've been with me in other classes, try to say, we've got to rescue the word eternal life from a very sort of flat human understanding of it. Most people, when they hear the word eternal life, they think to live forever and ever 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 and ever. And, ever and, ever. and so you think of just linear time going out as far as you can see. Now, that's, first of all, not very appealing, but second of all, it's, it's a very flat notion of eternal life. Eternal life is not simply the length of life. It is the fullness of life. As Irenaeus says, the glory of God is the human person fully alive. And it says here, therefore, what is eternal life? What is it? To be, what does it mean to become fully alive? What does it mean uh, not just to live forever, but to become fully alive? It means to know the Father. And again, let's rescue the word know. K-N-O-W. It is not simply an intellectual knowledge that's referred to here, but it's an experiential knowledge. It's not just to know about the Father. That's intellectual knowing. But rather to know him. That's experiential knowing. A deep, intimate, knowing knowledge of the Father brings us alive, See? And it's at the heart of eternal life. We will look on the beautiful, glorious face of the Father and Jesus' Son and the Holy Spirit, and we will come fully alive to know them and experience their glory. And we will come fully alive in a way we cannot even imagine now. Right now, we're just kind of zombies. We're the walking dead. We're the undead walking around, you know, (laughs) compared to what we'll be one day, right? So, So alive, so wonderful. Catherine of Siena heard the Lord say to her, Catherine, if you were ever to see a saint with me up here in glory, you'd fall down in worship because you'd think you were looking at me. See, I mean, that's your dignity and your future if you're faithful, right? All right. So, again, Jesus starts out by speaking to a kind of a paradoxical glory. Now it's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, it's, it, it, we wouldn't call this glory, but it is glory. It is glory because it is our greatest glory and Christ's greatest glory to hear his father's will and to live it fully and to, uh, to obey it. And in obeying God, the paradox is that in obeying God, we become truly free. And this is where our glory comes. We know the father, we love him. We want what he wants. We're on board with what he wants. And even if we know there's sufferings attached to it, we say, father, if you want it, I want it. See? And so this is again, that paradoxical glory. Most of us think of our glories. I get to call the shots, I do what I please, and everybody bows down in front of me. And that's just not on the charts for God or for us. All right, so I got to move on, but we start out in this prayer with the Lord sort of laying the stage for the paradox of the cross, which looks ignominious, which looks terrible, but which in his mind is his exaltation. And I, when I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. All right. Now, the next thing we go to in the prayer is what I'm calling a proleptic graciousness. We love our $10 terms in the church, don't we? Proleptic graciousness. What is it? What do we mean by proleptic? Proleptic refers to a future thing as if it were present now. That's a proleptic. So in other words, you know, you you sort of take something that will happen in the future and you bring it into the present as if it were present and active now. So uh, let's take a look here and see how that's applied. Verse six is where I am in the the, uh, prayer, all right? Father, I've revealed your name to those you have given me out of the world. Uh, They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I have given them the word you gave me, and they have received them. And they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And I ask on their behalf, and i ask I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you have given me, for they are yours, and all I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and in them I have been glorified, and I will no longer be in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you now I want to just say, <laughs> the Lord is being very gracious here <laughs> I mean, these These apostles are the, uh, half of this stuff, if it's true at all, is like only partially true. Listen to some of the things he says. They've kept your word. They now know with certainty that I've come. They, uh, they, know, uh, they know everything. Uh, that, that, and I, and they, they have received your words. And in them I have been glorified. Y'all, come on. Isn't he being gracious there? I mean, the most common response of the disciples whenever the Lord would give a teaching was the inept response. He would give a teaching like the greatest among you must be the servant. Next thing you know, they're having a debate about who's the greatest. I mean, yeah, you know, it makes your head want to explode. You know, they hardly have kept his word. Um, they hardly can say they know with certainty. Um, hardly can we say that uh, they've really received the Lord and, and have glorified him by the way they're living their lives. And we know that in the hours that are coming right after this, they're all going to beat it out of there. Uh, only John will make it to the foot of the cross, and Peter will outright deny him, and Judas will betray him. And the Lord is just speaking glowingly. <laughs> these, these, these folks that you've given me, man, they've, they've really got it. They understand it. They're living it. They're glorifying me, and they've heard your word, and they're living out of it. Oh, thank you, Father. Well, that's why I say this is a proleptic. This will be true of them. It isn't really now. And if it isn't now, it's just barely true, you see. So isn't it nice to know that God knows us in our perfection, and He can backload that into our present foolishness, you know? <laughs> like, don't worry, Carlito, I know you're a mess now, but I already know you and your glory here in heaven and man. Wait do you see it? So you're, you're my strong man. Well, I'm not your strong man, but yes, you are, you know, but it's a proleptic, right? Um, aren't you glad that also the Lord has a bad memory? <laughs> <laughs> our sins he puts behind him and he forgets them, right? But our good deeds go with us, right? Um, so aren't you glad? That's a pretty good deal. Amen. So uh, remember, don't, when you, we can be very discouraged about ourselves, you know, um, but uh, at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, God isn't, you know, he knows what his full grace will do in our lives. And uh, he's, he's working our purposes out. So he speaks glowingly of them to the Father, see, and uh is so good, so overjoyed, because he knows not just what they are today, but what they'll be tomorrow, especially after Pentecost and into the future. Okay, so this is what we mean by the proleptic graciousness. So when the Lord lifts up his hands and intercedes for you before his Father's throne, he lives forever to make intercession for him. His Father, I really love I, I really love them. I, I love Rhonda. I love Ginger. You know, I, I love Norma. I, you know, I love Kelsey and Joe. And uh, I, I love John. I, I you know, I, I, I love, I love Andy. Uh, but Lord, I, I, I love them because see how perfect they are. The, the Lord sees all that already, see. And he just knows. He knows the masterpiece that he's working on in your life, see. So don't be discouraged when the Lord lifts up his hands and he prays for you. He knows you in a way you don't know yourself. He also knows the depths of your current sadness. I mean, he said to um, Sister Faustina, of all people, you know, she's a nun living in the convent. She said, Faustina, if you were ever to see the horror of what you are now, you would die of fright. <laughs> Ouch! I mean, that's a that's a woman in a convent, you know, I mean, you know, so again, uh, he's, he, but he's not discouraged, right? He's not discouraged because of this proleptic, huh? That one day he knows what will become, all right, all right. So. It's a beautiful moment in the prayer, so gracious, so uh, so so such a, a fusion of love for his disciples, even knowing that they're all about to scatter and leave him quite alone. Okay, we move now, we've seen the paradoxical glory. We next moved, we, we, we looked at the proleptic graciousness, and now the Lord goes on and asks prayers to guard us, you see, so starting in uh, verse 11, I will no longer be in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. So Holy Father, Protect them by your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, um, I protected and preserved them by your name, the name you gave me. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, so that scripture might be fulfilled. Now, there's a, very, a couple of interesting things to ponder here. We don't usually think of being protected by a name. Um, So what's going on here? Right now, you could maybe imagine that let's say you were in trouble with the authorities, you know, the um, It shouldn't be this way, but let's just say the police officer pulled you over for speeding when you were a kid. And you say, well, I am the son or daughter of Senator so and so. Well, maybe that'll get you off. <laughs> okay, well, uh, well, you know, so sometimes you can under, we might, we might be able to imagine how you're protected by a name, right? You drop a name like that and uh, they say, whoopsie, well, let's just overlook this, but try to drive more safely and uh, be on your way now. Um, now, it shouldn't be that way, but I'm just saying that, you know, we sometimes know that who you know uh, and being under someone's name can be some form of protection, right? But obviously the Lord's talking about something deeper and richer here, isn't he, right? But what do what is, what is he talking about? Well, it says, your Holy Father, protect them in your name. Uh, protect them by your name. And, uh, and then it goes on and talks about uh, that they may be one. So I'm gonna talk about protection, first of all, what it means to be protected by the name and what its effect is. Uh, and how it looks and sounds and feels. So the name of God is I am, I am Yahweh, right? I am. Now, do you hear, that's not just a sound, it means something. And um, as uh, St. Um, Thomas says that God is ipsum uh, esse subsistence, right? He is the very act of being, uh, the very act of to be subsisting. Now, why is that important? And what brings protection? Because you see, what that means is that God is not shifting. He's not in a good mood this day or a bad day, that mood that day, or he's not like powerful today. And then he's, he's retreating tomorrow. You know, we know people who they're strong and powerful and mighty and they're, and then they lose an election and they're gone. Uh, we, we know how that type of stuff, they, they're not, they're not, I am They're I am today, or I'm the guy for now, but tomorrow you can't depend on them. Right? But the great I am, the great I am, who never changes, if you will allow that name to cover you, see, come what may, I am who I am, right? And I've always known your future and what you'd go through, and I've always been there and I've already provided. There is nothing that escapes my notice. Nothing surprises me. I am, I've, I, I know everything you're going to do tomorrow and the next day, and I know when this terrible plague is going to end, and I know the aftermath of it, and I know the ups and downs that you have now. I've always known those things before I ever made you, and have already presented the graces and everything that you need in this moment to be in this moment and to make it with me, all right? I, I am who I am, right? Not I might be tomorrow if, or I was yesterday, or I am for now. I am that I am, you see the um, you see in this name the stability he's the rock right, the immovable one, the one you can stand on the sure foundation, and if you will stay there, you will be protected by this name all right and it doesn't mean nothing bad will ever befall you, but it means God has already known that and has already provided a way for you not to be lost. It doesn't mean that you won't lose a job or money or a friend but it does mean that you won't lose your soul or your way, your salvation, if you will stay with God and everything will work together for your good. If you love and trust him as Romans eight says. Okay. So I am, so we're protected by that name. Okay. Now there's another aspect of it though. What, what, uh, what is one of the fruits of this protection and the Lord links it to unity. So he says, protect them by your name the name that you gave me, so that they may be one, even as you and I are one, uh, and, and, and so on. So that they may be one, even as you and I are one. Now, we know that one of the more dangerous things in our life is when we're divided, see? And if you and I will stay close to the great I am and listen carefully to his teachings and base our lives on those teachings, our, that's the source of our unity. God himself and what he has taught us is the source of our unity. And if we will stay there with him and stay close to those teachings, we will be one. And as one, we're always going to be stronger and protected. When we're divided, well, you know the old saying, divided we fall, or, divided we're conquered, right? Um, so again, we, we have to be working very hard at unity. Now, you know what a, what a problem that is today. We've made a real mess out of this, see? And we've entered into a lot of danger, you see. In Christian Europe, Christian Europe, there were over a thousand wars in Europe in the Christian era. Catholics killing Catholics for the most part, you see. What happens to our protection when we fall away from the unity, when we stop forgiving, when we hold grudges, when we refuse to repent of our anger and our vengefulness, when we refuse to give it to God, what happens to us? What happens to us when we throw away chastity and, and we see all the disease and abortions and we see children raised without their parents and all the sociological effects of that? What, what happens to us when we no longer really keep that unity around his word? We fall to pieces and our lives become more dangerous, less fulfilled, and so on. So there is, therefore, the great source of unity in the name. He says, it says, protect them by your name. And it goes on to say that you gave them to me so that they may be one as we are one. So this protection is experienced in our oneness, see? But we've got to go to to the Lord and really be serious about his word. Because the only thing that can be our unity is the truth of his word. This whole thing—my truth, your truth. Da 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 da. This idea of oh, let's just be relativistic. Let live and let live, and so on—becomes the tyranny of relativism. See. And so again, you see how precious unity is. It's related to this protection uh, in God's name. Now, I'd love to develop these things more, but I got to keep moving because we're not—we're not even halfway through. All right. So we've seen the paradoxical glory, uh, the cross that's mentioned here, the proleptic graciousness of the Lord. He sees what will later become. And, uh, and speaks with just great joy about us, even though sometimes we don't think <laughs> he'd have a lot of joy in us. We had, then we heard that the Lord gave some prayers to guard us. Now he's preparing to go. So he says here, but I am now coming to you, and I'm saying these things while I'm in the world so that they may have my joy fulfilled within them. Now, I, all I want to say about this is I can't develop this much with you, but you see, there, there's a joy in Jesus, despite he knows he's going to suffer terribly in the next 48 hours. But at the end of the day, we we want to understand that although he knows he's going to go through great pain and suffering here at the end of, um, uh, you know, in the next 48 hours, there's a certain joy of completing my mission, and I'm going to go back to the Father who I love. And uh, this is a great, this is a certain joy. And so I'm coming to you now and I'm saying these things to them now while I'm in the world so that they may have my joy fulfilled within them. It's a little bit like there's a bittersweet thing. Maybe you're bringing somebody to the airport who's been visiting you for a while. And um, they're going home, though, to their family. And um, you're sad to see them go. And, you know, you've been a great help to us here. You came to help us on this job sight or whatever. And I've really gotten to know you, you've become a great friend. And there's a kind of a sadness, but you also see the joy that they have, that they're going home to be with their family, you know, or sometimes when a loved one is dying, and we know they've been in a lot of pain, and they're walking uphill, and we 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 were sad to see them go. But there's a certain joy we have for them and a joy they have, I, I'm ready to go meet God now. And I can't wait to see him. And so there's a kind of a joy that we can have for people, even in sad moments. And I I think that's what the Lord is getting at here, you see. Um, You know, and I want them to know that there's a pain here, but there's also a joy that I'm coming home to you very soon, Father, very soon. Okay, now we move on then uh, to the, uh, we're about halfway through. I'd be now uh, in verse 14. Uh, He's um, praying for us that um, we be, Purified and genuine and there's something very beautiful that we want to reflect on here. I'm in verse 14 if you're following in your Bible. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for them, I sanctify myself so that they may be sanctified in the truth. Now, this is very key. I think it's the high watermark of, this, of the prayer. It uh, says here that, uh, you know, you've, you've, given them, uh, you, you've given them, I've given them your word and the world has hated them for it. Now, I don't have time to develop this with you right now, but as you know, our world has definitely diverged from Christian values. And increasingly, the world simply hates us for the fact that we take God's word fairly seriously. We're not just going to cave on every social demand today that we accept whatever it is, homosexual acts, or fornication, adultery, physician-assisted suicide, abortion, um, you know, excessive greed, and all these kinds of things. We're, we're, we're simply not going to just say, oh, wonderful, and I'll join the party. And the world hates us for this, right? He says, that, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Frankly, I need them in the world to help save this world. They need to continue my mission. But here's what I'm asking, Father. I'm asking you, first of all, to keep them from the evil one. Now how though? How? He goes on to say, sanct verse 17, sanctify them by the truth, and your word is truth. Okay. How are you gonna be how are you going to be protected from the evil one? Brothers and sisters, the battleground in your life isn't the flesh, it's your mind. That is the battleground, your mind. The devil wants you to think certain ways, and God wants you to think other ways and the devil will sow thoughts, and God is trying to give you other thoughts. And you have got to decide what's going to be going on in your mind all day long. And that's why we need a steady diet of God's word. We need a steady diet of moments like this, where we look at the word, where we study the faith together. We need to constantly be at war with with that attack of Satan in our mind. Romans 12 says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay. Or he says elsewhere, I think it's in the letter to the Ephesians, do not be like the pagans who live in the darkness and the futility of their minds. Their minds are darkened because of the sin that is within them. Okay, cannot be that way with you. The mind, our, our mind is very precious. So a thought, reap a deed. So a deed, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, and reap a destiny. And it all begins in that battleground of the mind. We are going to be protected by the evil one to the degree that we engage the battle of the mind. You may recall that on the three temptations in the desert, Jesus battled every temptation with scripture. And this is how it has to be with us. So he says, well, come on, man, scratch where it itches, turn these stones into bread. You know, you don't have to fast. That's kind of excessive, don't you think? Devil, scripture says man does not live on bread alone. And likewise, I could go on, but you get the point. With every evil thought sown into the mind of Jesus by this devil, he fights it back with the word of God. Our minds are like a sponge. Now, don't kid yourself. If you put a sponge in muddy water, it's coming out muddy. Now, how are you going to clean a dirty sponge? You plunge it into clean water and you wring it out. You plunge it back into clean water and you wring it out. And the clean water is the word of God. It's the teachings of the church. It's good, solid spiritual reading. That's how we clean our minds. And we've got to be sanctified by the truth. Now, a a quick word here about the Word of God. Um, Some of you have heard me say this before, but it's worth repeating, that in volume one of Joseph Ratzinger's three-volume Jesus of Nazareth, he speaks a little bit about the nature of the word gospel. He says that uh, the, the word gospel comes from edicts of the emperor, when an emperor would issue an edict of some kind, he would call it in Greek an evangelion, in Latin an evangelium. And it, it, would, it would have a certain form that will sound familiar to you. A town crier would come into the town center, and he would say, uh, alas, alas, uh, I bring you great tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. Today, the emperor is raising taxes. <laughs> all right. Now, that's not particularly good news, but here's the key point. It's life-changing because of what the emperor has said, your life is different. See, we tend to, we've heard today that the best way to translate the word evangelium or evangelion is uh, gospel or you know, gospel, which means good news. But that's a little bit trite in the sense that it doesn't capture the essential element. It may or may not be good news. So The emperor's raising taxes is not good news, but it is life-changing. And that's the key point. Now, here's another example. So the town choir comes into the town square and says, Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. Today, the emperor has decided to pave the road uh, between uh, Laodicea and, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, Galatia. You know, that's good news. It means it'll be easier to travel and so on. It's good news, but the main point is that it's life-changing. So when the emperors speak, your life is different. Now, what the gospel writers say that the, the 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 emperor's falsely claim is really true here, that when Jesus speaks this word, that we are sanctified by it, that our life is changed. And so Benedict goes on to conclude in that chapter, by the way, it's about page 44 or 45 in volume one. Look it up and read it. Um, but he says that the word of God, therefore, is not simply informative. It is performative, And it is, therefore, transformative. And so this word of God isn't just any old word. It is a word breathing forth love and grace and strength. And if you and I will hear it with faith, our lives will be changed by it. Now, I'm a witness. I got my hand raised up in the oath formula. Um, I've been studying the word of God, seriously, now for over 35 years of my nearly 60 years. And I want you to know I'm a changed man. I think differently. My priorities are different. I add to that the sacraments, of course, confession. I add to that, uh, you know, the celebration of daily mass and all those things. And I'm just telling you, I am a very different man today. I'm not what I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. And so as Jesus is praying this prayer, he says, Father, I, I, I want my disciples. I know they have to be in the world for now. I need them here to continue my work, but I want you to protect them from the evil one. And how will I do how will you how will he do that? Sanctify them by means of the truth. And your word is truth. Okay. So I can't develop it much more because it's getting on. I got about 10 more minutes. But don't miss this. I think this is the high water mark because Jesus has not left us alone. He left the church. He's left his word. He's left the sacraments. The angels are still here with us. He sent the Holy Spirit. So we're engaged in this battle, but we've got to be serious about it. And one of the ways we've got to be serious about it is to be very serious about being students of the word of God. And if we're not going to be serious about that, we're going to be easily deceived and led away. You know, dumb thoughts will seem reasonable, you see. And as you know, you've heard me say this before. A lot of people have everything exactly backwards. They say, well, that Bible doesn't make any sense. Come on. People don't think like that today. Exactly. Exactly. But why is the Bible on trial? It should be the world that's on trial. But we, we put the Bible on trial because of the world when we should have the world on trial by the, by the Bible. St. Paul says, test everything by the word of God. Put on your gospel glasses and see everything through them. Okay? All right, so I could go on and on and on. This could be, you know, but I have to move on. But again, listen again, just to a couple of highlights of what he says says here, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil world and from the evil one. Sanctify them by means of the truth, and your word is truth. All right? Okay. So, um, again, um, we need to move on, but not only are they to be purified and genuine, um, and genuine here means, you know, um, purified by the word and genuinely seeking to live it, all right? Next, we need to know that he's also got in mind prospective generations. He's not just praying for those disciples in front of him, but all who will come to faith through them. So he says this, I'm not simply asking on my own behalf of them alone, but on behalf of those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, as you are Father in me and I am you, and that they may also be in us, uh, that the world may believe that you sent me. So in other words, sitting at that table that day, Christ had you in mind, okay, he had you in mind, and certainly in his divine intellect, and I would argue even in his infused human intellect, he knew all of us by name, he knew us, he he knows all the members of his mystical body, and he was united with us, even though we didn't quite exist yet, remember, he's eternal, he lives outside of time, and he's not waiting for tomorrow, he's not waiting for your grandchildren to be born, he already knows them, loves them, cherishes them, and is providing for them, okay. Time unfolds for us, but not for God. And so he, at that moment, had you and me in mind that we would be sitting here today in the middle of a plague, meditating on his word, getting ready for for, uh, the great holy week that unfolds uh, in a way we never expected. He's always known that. He had you and me in mind at that moment. Now we move on. Uh, He keeps hammering away at this image of unity, and I want to develop that with you now in the next one. The proof that guarantees verse 22. Um, I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly united, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved me just as you, uh, you have loved them, just as you have loved me. All right, now we need to talk about this unity, this being one, It's not just that we're all getting along and we all have buttons on, we know each other's first name and, um, um, you know, we're all nice and we never argue and, you know, that kind of stuff. First of all, we want to go a little bit deeper and realize that if you're baptized into Christ Jesus, you see, you're a member of his body and that's our ultimate source of unity, right? So that we even call um, the Protestants our separated brethren. They are our brothers and sisters. Something separates us at the human level, but Christ is still their Lord and he died for them. Um, The ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. God even loves your enemy. Um, So there's a mystical union that transcends our foolishness. And we have been foolish, foolish, foolish. And we've had every sort of human division among us. But none of that can utterly ruin the fundamental deeper unity that Christ maintains. He even holds your enemy close to his heart. All right. And hasn't given up on them. Now it is true that maybe through mortal sin we sort of separate ourselves from the body, but we're just one confession away. See, we're not just off into the nether world, never to be heard from again. Um, so again, I want you to be very clear that this—you know—I pray, Father, that they be one, even as we are one. And, you know, and I pray that they just all get along and be nice. And he wasn't dumb, and he knew—he knew us, and he knows what, what 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 we do and what we're like. He knows that. But he's, he is praying that we would be one. Now, let's admit, though, we made a disgrace of this, you know, these divisions among Christians and the 30,000 denominations. And now, you know, we can say, well, those Protestants, look at them. But, you know, we, we were part of the problem, too. You know, we didn't reform the church when we should have. And there's an awful lot of people now we're we're seeing what a mess we're still in. See, and we can't we can't simply just say, oh, look at them. They walked away. Uh, we have to say that somehow we've all been part of the wound and we're all going to have to be part of the solution. And I want you to know that until recent years, I mean, the last few years, there was a great steady stream of really good Protestants coming into the church. Um, and they're wonderful. They bring gifts, the love, love, love of Scripture, love of, of the Lord Jesus, very personal walk with Christ, and they brought many gifts back with them. And sometimes the Lord allows some of these divisions outside, you know, among ourselves to then eventually bring us back enriched. So I'm not going to just sit here and say, well, we, this, uh, Jesus apparently got this prayer wrong. Uh, there's a deeper unity that we can't overlook here. Now, I also, though, want to talk about a little bit this that for whatever internal divisions we have had, and they are disgraceful, the Lord speaks of a certain unity that the world can only marvel at, namely what we call the indefectibility of the church. The Lord said that the gates of hell would never prevail against the church, which suggests they're going to try, right? but they're not going to prevail. Now, in a way, the church is a miracle. And why Why do I say that? Well, <clears throat> look at all the attempts that we've made to tear it down and divide it. And, and um, if the church's unity were depending on us, how long would it have lasted? 20 minutes max, Right. 20 minutes max as it is this deeper unity of the body of Christ through the Holy spirit and and indwelling and through the Lord's promise of indefectibility means that for 2000 years now, we have been here one Holy Catholic and apostolic faith going right back to then teaching the handing on the same gospels, the same scriptures we've always handed on. And the world has tried to destroy us in many and numerous ways. Where is Caesar now? Where is uh, Napoleon now? Where is the Soviet Socialist Republic now? You see, empires have come and gone. Nations have risen and fallen. People have sworn they would destroy the church. And we've read the funeral rites over them. And here we still are preaching the gospel. The same gospel that was handed on to us some 2,000 years ago. See, This is the kind of unity that we have to look for. We can see on the surface... Lots of storminess and divisions. But, you know, like even though when there's a hurricane blowing in an ocean, if you can go down under even just a few feet, things are calm. You would hardly know the storm is blowing on the surface. Um, I'm not trying to excuse the storms on the surface, but do not be discouraged that when the Lord prayed for this unity, it often exists in spite of us. And the church is a miracle because if it wasn't for this prayer of the Lord, we would have been lost a long time ago. It is true, many have peeled off from us and formed other denominations, but here we still are, the the Holy Catholic Church, still preaching, still teaching the very same thing, going all the way back to the time of the apostles. So brothers and sisters, don't be too discouraged that the Lord's Prayer here never came to pass. Uh, We are one, one faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, still here, still preaching after all these years, often in spite of ourselves. right. Now, a couple final things here, Um, the passage to glory. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am, that they may see the glory that you gave me because you love me before the foundation of the world. In other words, Father, I, I want you to bless them here, but above all, get them ready for heaven. I want them to be with me and you in glory. I want them to know the beauty of you that only I've ever known. I can't wait to show them your glory. I can't wait to show them a heavenly place I prepared for them. I can't wait. Father, keep them faithful because I want them to see the glory that I know I'm going to have with you in a few moments. And I've always known with you. Oh, heavenly Father, keep them faithful so I can show them this glory. And then finally, persistent growth. Righteous Father, verse 25. Righteous Father. Although the world has not known you, I know you, and they know that you sent me. And I've made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have for me may be in them and I in them. In other words, you know, I've I've made known these things to them, but I'm going to keep making them known. In other words, deepen the knowledge and the understanding that they have of my teaching. Jesus said in another place, you know, I have many other things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. But when the Spirit comes, he'll lead you to the whole truth. He'll remind you of everything I taught you and, lead you to the whole truth, you see. So yes, I taught them, Father. I know they have much more to learn, and I'm gonna keep teaching them and deepen their knowledge and their love, both individually and corporately. The church will grow uh, in her traditions and her knowledge of me and of you. And so I'm simply asking now that as I leave, Lord, let's begin to send our Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, and bring about that growth, that enormous growth that has now led to over 1.3 billion Catholics on this planet. And however ever many stretching back in time and stretching forward in time. So, again, I want you to see that this beautiful priestly prayer he has in his heart. Father, I, I want your glory to be manifest. I love you, Father. I love the people you've given me. They've been good to me. Um, I'm, you know, he praises us and almost, like I say, proleptically, he's very gracious. He loves us. He's lifting us up. He's saying, Father, help them to grow. Keep my church in unity. Even if there's trouble at the edges and the surface, keep that core unity there. And um, the Lord's been faithful. And these, these prayers, I think, have been fulfilled, even at times in paradoxical ways, even at times, despite our fighting, fighting tooth and nail, the Lord still, he, will, he wills out and he will always win in the end. Okay, so there's our basic uh, review of the high priestly prayer of Christ, a, priest, uh, a prayer of great love, a prayer just as you go to the cross to accomplish these things for us. So somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus for your love and for your trust in, in us. Trust in me. I wouldn't trust me. Somehow you did. So, <laughs>
1: All right. thank, you so and, thank you so much, Monsignor. And a, a great reminder in terms of the importance of staying in contact with the word. Uh, it's just like any other relationship, right? Like if you don't stay in contact with somebody, the next time you see them, that interaction is awkward and stilted and man, it can happen. I know for myself too, if I'm not staying in contact and opening up that Bible every day, someone could present a situation that happened in, you know, the gospel. And I'd say, oh no, I'm sure God wouldn't, you know, react that way. And then lo and behold, that's exactly how he's reacting. And it's us that needs to adjust. All right, we will now transition into Q&A. Our first question is coming in from uh, Yuvu Ki, who writes in and is asking, does this unity that Christ prayed for uh, in his prayer, does it uh, only carry over or apply to humanity, or does it include sort of the whole world, the whole cosmos uh, in general? Okay.
2: Um, well, I, I would actually restrict it even a little bit more. This unity primarily is our baptized members of his body. Um, now, there, 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 are, there is a scripture that says he holds all creation together in himself, namely Jesus. Uh, in that sense, there's a unity of the whole cosmos. But let me put it this way. <clears throat> all, he, all of creation is within him, but only the church is his body. Does that make sense? I mean, it's a little bit mystical. You've got to stop and figure it out. We do have a scripture in Colossians that says he holds all creation together in himself. That is to say, you know, but on the other hand, only the church is his body. Okay. And uh, so we might say, if you can imagine you've got food in your stomach, that's not your body. <laughs> um, you see the distinction? So Christ can hold something together in himself, but only the church is his body
1: hmm. Regina's writing in here. this is Regina Legra. was um, so wondering how do I hand over my troubles, concerns, anxieties over to Jesus? Isn't that re- relinquishing my responsibility with him? Um, yes, how do you distinguish I'm trying to just sort of like outsource a problem, right?
2: So a couple more I mean a couple of of St Augustine come to mind. First of all, he says, the, the how do how you hand it over? More things, he says, are accomplished in prayer by sighs and tears than by many words. You know, one of the dangers is we could say, okay, God, i got a problem here now. Uh, here's the solution. I want you to see my, my steps to the solution. Please initial at everything and don't forget to sign and at the bottom and don't forget to date it. And so we start telling God what to do. Um, so I think that... Um, Remember how Mary uh, went to Jesus and said, they have no more wine. And he said, what's that got to do with me? And she didn't tell him what to do after that. She just said to the steward, do whatever he tells you. Um, so I think at some point, that's the first thing we want to say. Sighs and tears. Go to God and say, I have a need. I, I don't know how to be free of this anxiety or this problem. I don't know what to do. Uh, give me some insights, Lord. And if once you show me what to do, I'll do it. And now another thing, therefore, St. Augustine said is, pray as if everything depends on God and act as if things depend on you. Uh, That's to say, God is going to involve you in the solution, or he may bring someone else, but at the end of the day, yeah, he who made you without you isn't going to save you without you. You don't just say, I'm ordering lunch here, Lord, and wait for the tray to drop out of the heavens. That's just (laughs) not the way it works. And so I think if we can remember that balance, I will tell you this much. God is very aware, as I am as a priest, especially in deliverance ministry, many medical doctors are aware of this, Many people want relief. They don't want healing because healing involves change. It involves being part of the solution. It might mean, so, you know, you go to the doctor and you're obesity three and you say, well, look, just give me the pill or give me the surgery. That's, that's, that's relief. What you want is healing, lose weight, get out of the plan, do something, you know, but okay. So you see, that's hard work. And so Jesus is, and the Lord is very much aware. So be, be careful of what you're sort of hinting at as a problem namely that just going to God and casting my cares and say, take it away and just wait for him to take it away. Mm-hmm. That isn't the way he usually works. Mm-hmm. He says, okay, I'm going to go about healing. Um, he said to the paralytic, take up your mat now and walk away. You know, there's something for us to do, um, and be part of the healing.
1: Mm-hmm. Ray, I, I saw that you had a question. Feel free to unmute yourself. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the paradox you spoke about, uh, but we're on the other side of the resurrection at the m- moment he's praying these words what do you think the apostles would have thought well we already know what they
2: thought they thought he was crazy remember how peter said this will never happen to you lord and um at one point thomas was so exasperated jesus said, we're going to to, to jerusalem he said oh man they're trying to kill you there and you know they're all saying, don't go there, man. What are you doing, man? They're going And Thomas finally says, let's all go to Jerusalem and die with him. You know. And at other points, they're just a, they're in kind of denial. He's talking about uh, the Son of Man will be handed over to the hands of men and and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And no one had any more courage to ask him questions about this. So they're avoided. They think he's half crazy. They don't know what he's talking about, and they're completely mixed up. They haven't they haven't got this down at all yet. So I think generally, Ray, that, that would be the answer that it, we don't have to even speculate too much. You know, they were pretty, uh, pretty much uh, um, bewildered by the whole thing and uh, just finally at some point, don't tell us anything more about this.
1: Let's go ahead and end with this uh, last question from Charlotte Price. She's writing in, you mentioned about how the world, uh, you know, hates us. Uh, do you have any advice on how we are to interact with the world uh, given this heat,
2: well, I'll tell you something. Um, a kind of an odd. I'm going to give you an odd answer. And by the way, if we have time, Norma here on the panel also had a question. But uh, but the fun. I've been in exorcisms, and I, I don't want to be too specific. But I remember. Um, I remember saying to the, uh, the demon, at one point, you know, the priest is allowed to inquire about the motivations. How, why did the demon motivate or what was motivating them to possess this person and so on. And so I basically said to the demon, why are you doing this? He says, because I hate you. <laughs> now You don't need to know much more about a demon than that. But, you know, I got to tell you, and we were warned about this. We're not to hate demons and I don't hate them. I kind of feel sorry for them. They were once beautiful angels and they've fallen. And unfortunately, in an exorcism, you're inflicting a lot of torture and pain on them. I don't want to do that. You know, I was never like one of those kids who would grab a spider and pull the legs off. I mean, that was horrifying, you know. And so that's the kind of stuff, though, it's a very sad and tragic situation. So I think that if if even an exorcist can pray for the grace to not hate the demons, um, but to somehow still love them, even though we know we have to keep our distance and we can't agree with what they do, but not to hate them back. Because if I start hating them, I am I'm I've become them. So somewhere along the line, I think that um, we have to start at an extreme example like that. Now, we come to the world and people hate us. And it's irksome to be hated and yelled at and called names. But, you know, I want to guarantee you that something in that person is hurting. Maybe we've touched a nerve. They know what they're doing is wrong or... Maybe we, they were traumatized by church, you know, growing up in a church Mm -hmm. abused by a clergyman or their parents were excessive and extreme. Who knows? You know, there's lots of different reasons. The sisters and I walk the park praying the rosary every day, especially in this plague. And most people honk and wave at us, but every now and again, we'll get a middle finger and we say, you know, your God did this and things like that. And, you know, I've just, they've been hurt. They've been hurt, you know, and, um, so I, I think somewhere along the line, usually people who are abusive have somehow been abused and that, that's not to excuse them, but at some level to have at least some compassion and understanding, all right?
1: Yeah, that's yeah, definitely helpful to keep in mind. Uh, Norma, I'm sorry, we're, we're going to have to actually close out tonight. If you want to write in your question uh, to us, we, we would be happy to pass it along to Monsignor. Well, uh, thank you, Monsignor, but I have everyone that's in here. Uh, we really appreciate the, the time that you've spent and the care Preparing this reflection for us. And I know it surfaced a lot of new ideas for me, and I know I'm not just speaking for myself. Uh, would it be possible to receive your blessing and we could conclude there?
2: Yes. A benedictio de omnipotentis patriot filii, spiritu SUPER supervos et mania semper. Amen. Amen.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.